so uh, do you guys see any kind of similarities in, in what you do and what Laurent does and crossovers? Because I, I found it really interesting the way you were talking about um, uh, the wines that you, you didn't want to serve. I think you said Sancerre because it was too easy. So there seems to be this thing where we're all we all have this we all have this, this common problem where we're, we're trying to get customers to drink certain things and they want to drink something else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I chose I chose to do Sancerre and um, and New Zealand Sauvignon because that's the grape varietal that talks most to people. Anybody that goes to a restaurant, if they ask for a glass of white wine, is going to be at eighty-five percent of the time Sauvignon New Zealand. Oh, well done. A glass of white wine. Oh, yeah. Do you have a Sauvignon? That's, it. That's the only thing they can say. Like, there's a lot more going on, you know? Uh, so, usually I try not to have an actual Sauvignon Blanc by the glass. So I say, oh, can I have a Sauvignon by the glass? I don't, I don't do that. Oh, what can I get? So then they have to look at the list and look at what the wines are, and they're completely lost because they don't know anything about what's on there. So then you have to explain, okay, this is lighter or drier, and that's more relating towards the Sancerre, but not quite, uh, because it's got more mineral character or not. Then they say, okay, they have no choice but to try it. So it's a bit like tricky, but it works. Did you find that uh, Sideways and Pinot Noir kind of ruined the uh, the industry for a little while? But the thing is that I did not even finish the movie. <laughs> it's not worth finishing, to be fair. I only did it because I was on a flight. It bored me so much. I was like, oh my gosh. It's a terrible I film. Just, I just stopped it and said, oh, you should have gone to the end. So apparently sales of Pinot Noir in America like yeah. quadrupled after this film Sideways came out and it carried yeah. on for a while, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's made a massive influence for Pinot Noir, yeah. Which is great, it's a great, great varietal, very hard to work with, but the, the one, that's my second best varietal I've, uh, with, uh, with Riesling. Pinot Noir is amazing, it's done well, it's such a great wine. Um, but then, yeah, it's, uh, that has a massive impact on the, and people want to have it because they think it's something you should have, because the movie was made out of it. But then, um, it's kind of sad, really, that it has to go that way. But at the same time, if it helps sales and people to get it, but when it comes to that way, it becomes like what happened everywhere in the world, where um, it's overdone. You know, like in France, France, Italy, every country had it, where um, it's called uh, the South France, the rosé, were being produced like tons of tons in the Provence and, so and uh, the Languedoc Roussillon, and because they were focusing in, in quantity rather than quality, went down. Um, Italy with Chianti's was the same. Chianti had the massive rate, it was amazing, and then they were overproducing it, putting in bottle with like wicker around it, looking amazing, and then it was gone very acidic and na nasty. Then the Australian tried redoing Chardonnay and Shiraz, great, very good, then putting oak in it, great, love it, and then there's too much oak, people don't like Chardonnay anymore. But at all, say, oh, I love lovely Chardonnay, I don't like Chardonnay. We haven't tried this one, I don't like Chardonnay. They don't want to try it anymore. It's like, yeah, we've got to try this one, it's amazing. But yeah. Everybody's experience is that oaky kind of yeah, yeah, yeah uh, overpairing, yeah. and it's kind of handy having Gordon sitting next to you because Gordon, um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you've done the coffee in good spirits and did rather well in the worlds. Um, yeah, second right. bridesmaid, um, third. <laughs> oh, you were third. Oh, you all, all good people come third. You did worse than I thought. <laughs> um, it's all right. I can live with that. Um, the pairing of coffee and alcohol together is something that we all kind of don't like. <laughs> but we kind of encourage as well. Yep. I mean, and you also, at the Attic, you also have a, a, a wine and beer offering and gin offering, spirits. Um, how do you feel they work together uh, in the opposite of what Laurent has, which is like, you know, f wine is the main focus and a little bit of coffee. You're mainly coffee with a, a, an alcohol focus. Um, particularly in the Attic, which is the kind of more speciality uh, aspect of the business, 
we, we try and engage the consumer in two ways. One is, here's a traditional menu. So if you just want to come rock up and have some tasty coffee, that's grand. But the other side is more engaging, so it facilitates the consumer to ask in a certain way that you know they want a further experience delving into, whether it be gin, beer, or coffee, which is choose your beans, choose your brew method, and that can have facilitate a conversation and an experience. Um, we try to work uh, very strong in this. Like, if you go to Scotland and you go into a, a bar and you ask for a whiskey, you can just ask for a whiskey, I'll have that whiskey, or you can say, what's, what's good? And then the conversation pursues of Provence, where it's from. You will find a whiskey you like, because they can taste virtually anything. And it, we just try to pick up that kind of informal, informative process that facilitates conversation and develops an experience. So, yeah, very similar in that kind of process of um, engagement. Um, I'll move on to Matt here. So I think in the, the presentation, what I saw here, you probably saw me leaning up and taking pictures of. I love the thing with the circles and the colors. And we had a similar thing in the shop for one that worked really well for a short time with, with retail coffee. Is there, Matt, have you, have you tried like non-verbal communication in the way that you sell coffee? Like in terms of without having to sit there? Because a lot of people are afraid to ask. Or also, a lot of people are interested but don't want to be told as well, which is a really weird one to difficult, uh, weird one to deal with. So, I've had too much. Uh, how have you? Um, how do you deal with with descriptors in a, in a non-verbal way? Um, it's very hard to deal with them in a non-verbal way, but it actually, the whole setup of the shop tries to replicate what. Laurent has at the restaurant. So you take my take people on a journey. By the time they get to the coffee, they're more open to experiencing that journey. We don't have that luxury of having a menu before us and the different, different courses and different wines. We have to do it the minute they come through the door. So we try and design the whole shop around that. It's atypical in design, it's atypical in look, atypical in um, board layout. So that hopefully we're tilting them away from the traditional oh, I'd like a latte, please, with caramel syrup. Because instantly, you're thinking, oh, this is different, I'm not going to get that. So we're opening up towards that. So the non-visual cues maybe make it more um, amenable to that sort of style of drinking and style of coffee. Um, it's just it's very hard to say, this coffee tastes like, we'll have this sort of flavor profile with a color, because you have to educate them in the color or in the symbol. So you may as well educate people in reading the menu. It seems to... We were going around the houses at the idea. So we just try and design the menu and try the shop. It puts pressure on us, but that's fine. We don't mind it. But we help ourselves with the way the shop looks and the menu's designed. Chloe. Hi, Chloe. Um, your alter ego to water is uh, your food blog, um, Fairy Tale Foodie. Um, a great, great blog. You should definitely go check it out. But you're very much into the food side um, of uh, uh, the kind of the tasting side. What's your experience of specialty coffee and so, like the, your best experiences that you've seen in other restaurants? Food. Um, it's got a long way to go. <laughs> um, best. Um, oh, sorry. Um, gosh. Put on the spot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are some places doing it really well. Obviously, Noma do it really well. Um, I haven't been. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but probably a handful of places that I know of. I know the fat duck are changing, um, trying to do a better, better job of things. Um, what do you think the barrier is? The barrier? Uh, so, so I think people think they want an espresso-based drink or they want an espresso after a meal. And restaurants always say to me that they don't want to serve filter because they, they don't think the customer wants that. Mm-hmm. So automatically you've, you've got this sort of barrier and problem. Mm. Um, there are places doing filter coffee. Like um, Noma only does filter, don't they? Mm. So it's, it's just challenging people's preconceptions of what they want. Well, Lyle's do a very good job, actually, in yeah. Shoreditch. Do you think good. it, in some ways, comes down to just a willingness on the behalf of the restaurants to commit to it? Because yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's a whole new skill they have to learn. And it's a whole new set of uh, pressures they have to learn. And it's a willingness to put the time and effort it's into what is, yeah, so what is a very small part of the menu. But they have to commit, really commit to it to do it properly. Yeah. Um, I, I think, personally, one of the big uh, barriers is that if you have... You have a bottle of wine, a good bottle of wine, let's say, I don't know, uh, let's say you're selling a bottle of wine for £30. And the margin on that, without giving the game away, is probably, I don't know, like at a restaurant, once you've taken everything out of it, they're probably making £15 out of it. Would that be fair? Just a gross profit, yeah, at least, yeah. Uh, so after taxes and then w- with the yeah. cost, whatever. Um, this, this is the, like, that's a motivator for a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've engaged with, with a certain amount of restaurants, but the problem we always come back to is that they might take four kilos a week. Uh, they might waste a lot of that and only really serve like a, a, a fifty seat or like an eighty seater restaurant. It wouldn't be too kind of unheard of for them to serve, you know, maybe sixty coffees in a night. Like that would be a good return, which isn't an awful lot of coffees. So, mm-hmm. warranting the expense of having a trained barista and managing that with the actual net profit of that outcome. Is, uh, is quite a difficult thing, I'd imagine. That's very true. <laughs> because it, we do have evenings where, for some reason, people don't have much coffee at all. And if you've done three coffees in the evening, it's amazing. It's like, oh, really? That's weird. Uh, because they just want maybe even to stay on that taste they had for the experience. They don't want coffee to have in between. Or and some night, we just can't stop having coffee everywhere and drinks everywhere. It's like, it's like a whole day of I want to eat and drink. So it's, it's kind of funny how it varies. And it's true that on the night where there's not many coffee, that unfortunate barista is like almost of, not is not of no use, but he's here for no reason almost, and it's very true. Um, but then uh, at the same time, when it comes to the fact that uh, a lot of people having coffee and they would be interested, then suddenly you could have that experience to the guest, which like, pff, oh, this guy is incredible. He, to, to, the guy, the sommelier took me on a journey, but this one as well, his coffee was incredible. So then suddenly he said, okay, the, then they, the thing that they, they come first for the food because that's what you come to a restaurant for. And to have the wine as a pairing is a bonus. And then you can have coffee as a bonus. Okay, what else is the bonus after? You know, you could, uh, you could have something else after. You could have a, a popular cocktail at the front of that. Or like a popular, like maybe it's not a cocktail, but maybe a drink that you make different, whether you flavor a gin your way or flavor whiskey your way. And then you make it a drink, and that's your, your drink you should sell at the restaurant. And you make it very personal. And you start the journey like this. So the same like if you sat, his very first course is an introductory course. And it's here to like get the taste buds started. And it's like full of flavor, it's punchy. And it's like, oh, what is this? And usually most people remember that very first course more than the rest. But I was like, wow, that's wow. And then the rest is wow still, but that very first thing was the thing that shocked them to start. So if you can show them beforehand, 
and show them all the way to the end, and they walk out the door because you opened the door for them to get out because you didn't leave them to get out on their own. But the whole experience became so flawless. It's like, oh my God, this place is amazing. So it's, it's, it's trying to get all those points ticked at all times. It's not always easy, but um, if you can do it at 95% of the time, then you go somewhere. I, um, I remember when I came to the restaurant last time and there was nobody having coffee and we finished our meal and I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to do the coffee. And as soon as the cafetiere came out and there was something going on, it, all of a sudden people on the other tables were kind of looking at our table going, well, well, we want some coffee as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel that that whole French press thing, I know Sat took a lot of convincing to do that. He wanted to have an espresso machine, and yeah. we were like, I was like, I'm not selling you an espresso machine, no. Like, not yeah. until you do this part, and then he did that part, then had the, yeah. the, the machine. Do you think that actually adds to the excitement of people having the coffee? When it starts coming out, does that have a domino effect? Well, uh, I'm sure that uh, Sat will not go back to just espresso. I think he's very happy to have all those coffee fresh press machines now, where we do now, because again, it's related to taste experience. Um, uh, he's invested also like a very like funky looking uh, tea cup and coffee, uh, tea uh, and coffee, uh, sort of like a fresh press, which looks amazing. So just by the look of it, the guests are like, "Oh, that's wow! I want the same at home." And then, uh, and then suddenly you pour a coffee and a tea, um, which again comes as a part of the experience and taste and flavor. So certainly, yeah, it's that influence. And we we bring uh, the uh, chocolate with him as well, and those chocolates are here to again, be part of the journey of taste and flavor and they have to ease your digestion, so they're here for a purpose. It's just not the chocolate, it's a chocolate here to be here for you. Um, so all of that, when a guest sees that, they say, oh, I want chocolate too. Ah, it comes with the coffee, you know. Oh, I'll have a whatever. So then you, you sold the coffee with the chocolate because they wanted the chocolate, so that helps as well. But just to see the, the, the fresh price, you say, oh, that's nice, yeah, as you say, it helps. But it's like, it's like uh, when you have a party of like 200 people, these tables of tens everywhere, and the goal is to, when you have a bottle of champagne, you pop the cork. Because if you pop the cork, somebody hears it, like, oh, champagne around. And everybody wants it then. It's, it's like a technical thing. We used to work in, or I, we, I used to work in a restaurant in Dublin. And uh, we did Irish coffees. And Irish coffees in the middle of service is a nightmare because you've got to stop and concentrate, make sure that the cream doesn't sink and everything like that. So when somebody ordered an Irish coffee, uh, there was three waitresses that used to work in the restaurant. So they'd come in, or one of the girls would come in, and I'd give them the Irish coffee, and I'd give them a menu, and I'd say, cover the Irish coffee with the menu. If anyone sees it, you are dead. <laughs> you know, so they hide it on the way to the table, you know? Because if you walk through with one, you know? But we've used that to our advantage in, in the cafe. Like we had this dish, you know, when nobody was ordering it. I said, like, it looks amazing. So I was like, or one of the staff came down to the kitchen, I was like, this make that, give it to him, and bring it for a walk around the cafe. So I got the guy to walk around the cafe, and then outside looking for a table, and then back in again. And people are like, what's that? I want to order that. And then, you know, it, it goes. So you can use it to your advantage as well. That power of that um, uh, visual in the theatre is amazing. We had a, um, we used to run a siphon, possibly the least convenient brewing method in the universe. But we had what we would call the siphon hell. So once one goes out on a busy day, that's it. You are stuck there, and you are brewing for an hour and a half Guaranteed. First one goes, people are like, oh, I want that. It's amazing. And you're like, oh no. And you had to keep refreshing and redoing it. But it's, it's an amazing thing. So we got rid of it in the end. Um, just because we wanted to have it more flexibility. <laughs> it was just a bit too much. But it's an incredible thing, that power of uh, just bringing out that first one and then the domino effect, how it, how it sort of trips down. Yeah, we've, 
we've got a potentially got a new space to work with. And I, I had told you the idea of just getting a siphon bar just to, you know, do it for fun until you can't do it anymore. It would definitely be a lot of a lot of uh I don't know. Work. Work. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Okay, well I think we've probably come to the stage where we can uh, we can wrap things up and let Jen relax. So uh can <laughs> hear an audible sigh at the back, Jen. Uh, so at this stage, I'd like to thank everybody at Cope North for letting us come here today. I think uh, we've really enjoyed it. We enjoyed it last year, and we're looking forward to next year already. All of our speakers uh, today, thank you so much, guys. It's been really great and really, really intriguing. And I think the, the value of Tamper Tantrum is not just in the event on the day. It's, it's the videos that go online. It's, it's the, the conversations that come, come after it as well. Um, when you were thanking speakers, were you thanking yourself at the same? I was getting. I've got a big ten-minute thank you for myself as well coming up. Yeah, I can. I can. I can. I can thank Colin. Most for importantly, you like. I'd like to thank. No, no. Um, so that's great. We of course have got Tamper Tantrum coming up in Paris in a couple of weeks' time. So uh, we're, we've decided to coincide, you know, holiday destinations with with Tamper Tantrum, which is a good tactic for future. So um, thank you all for coming. Chester. Yeah, well, you know, to start somewhere. I've never been here. I was here last year. Um, but yeah, thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you for speaking. And uh, thank you to Jen, obviously, for running around, and Dale, as well, for making all this stuff happen, and the guys from yeah, Tentacle. Too. Yeah, Tentacle. So a round of applause. We're done. <laughs>